Good afternoon, everyone. We're going to go ahead and get started. Our presenter this afternoon is Dr. Paul Christo. Dr. Christo is an associate professor at Johns Hopkins University. The talk that he will be giving this afternoon is Neurogenic Thoracic Outlet Syndrome. Please help me welcome our esteemed faculty, Dr. Christo. Well, thank you. Thank you for having me, and thanks for sticking with the uh, conference. It's late today, and it's a Friday. They've allotted a lot of time for this, so hopefully it'll be definitely uh, for sure time for questions at the end, even though I have uh, quite a bit of material to present. Uh, let's see, let me make sure this is going to work. Uh, I don't think this is, hang on. Hmm, I can't advance anything yet. Yep, no problem. Okay, not my own. Okay. Okay. I, the disclosures are on the screen. And what I'd like you to do, or what I would like to happen from this presentation, is for you to be able to identify the three different forms of thoracic outlet syndrome. Primarily, the talk is on neurogenic, though. And to recognize that there are some interesting histologic findings that demonstrate that, you know, perhaps the anterior or middle scalene muscles could be the main causative factor of the neurogenic form of thoracic outlet syndrome, and then to describe the value of botulinum toxin for treatment, that is, for reduction of symptoms associated with neurogenic thoracic outlet syndrome. Well, you know, I'm going to start off by saying that it's no news to you that chronic pain has become an epidemic. You know, we're really not bombarded in the media by the news that chronic pain is an epidemic, or rather bombarded in the media by the opioid overdose epidemic and what they call the opioid overdose epidemic. But really, you know, the reality is that chronic pain is often untreated, undertreated, and has become a significant public health problem. It diminishes quality of life, it changes financial well-being, it increases disability, and it causes a lot of functional limitations in life and leads to a lot of psychosocial problems as well. And we know from the Institute of Medicine report there are about 116 million people living with chronic pain, which is a third of the population. And it's, you know, worldwide it's 1.5 billion that live in chronic pain. I don't know if you knew that, but it's massive. It's massive. And so are the economic costs, almost $625 billion annually. What we learned from the science, from the literature, from studies, is that pain is a disease in and of itself. It's not just a symptom of other diseases once it becomes chronic. And I want to discuss just briefly central sensitization because I think that that can occur in patients who have neurogenic thoracic outlet syndrome because like any other chronic pain condition, it can lead to uh, disability and psychosocial comorbidities. Well, this is a diagram uh, or a picture, if you will, of the dorsal horn of the spinal cord. And what we see that happens in central sensitization, remember that central sensitization is that process of pain amplification that occurs from trauma or from chronic pain conditions. And if you look at this, the, this is the dorsal horn of the spinal cord over here. Can you see me pointing over here? If you're over there, you, can you see this over here? Not, you can? Okay. That's the dorsal horn of the spinal cord. And what this is showing is that with a chronic pain condition, for example, um, say neurogenic thoracic outlet syndrome, 
the primary afferent terminals, the C-fibers or the A-delta fibers, begin to release glutamate in substance P, for example. Abnormalities occur in the calcium channels. And once this occurs, the glutamate and substance P bind to specific receptors on the dorsal horn of the spinal cord, which is re represented right here. And once that occurs, physical chemical changes occur inside the dorsal horn of the spinal cord. Protein kinases are activated such that eventually you're getting gene transcription that leads the, to the perpetuation of chronic pain. Uh, and this process occurs in a multitude, you know, many chronic pain conditions. And it can occur in the neurogenic form of thoracic outlet syndrome as well. There are local interneurons here, interestingly, too, that help quell the response, right? I mean, the local interneurons can release glycine, they can release GABA, and that can influence um, whether genes are transcribed at the level of the spinal cord or not. Well, the consequences of persistent pain are significant. You know, patients report lower ratings of their health, more and costly use of healthcare resources. They smoke cigarettes to a greater extent, use alcohol more, and that can lead to, as well as other things, can lead to changes in diet, obesity, and a reduction in function. There are higher levels, certainly, of emotional distress as well in patients who have persistent pain, and social supports diminish too because, I mean, as a lot of patients will tell you, you know, over time, no one wants to hear them anymore. No one wants to hear them complain, and it, and it becomes um, depressing over time. The true, the true form of, which is rarely seen, frankly, of neurogenic thoracic outlet syndrome looks like this, and it's a patient here. Um, this is a normal hand on the right, on the left is the um, demonstration of true neurogenic thoracic outlet syndrome. What you're seeing is atrophy of the thenar and hypothenar eminences. And this patient presented with weakness of the hand, not a whole lot of sensory symptoms, but primarily weakness in the hand muscles. And when you, you know, in contrast to the common form of NTOS, EMG nerve conduction testing here, specifically nerve conduction testing, will demonstrate abnormalities you know, in um, nerve conduction velocities of the median nerve, for example, the ulnar nerve, the medial antibrachial cutaneous nerve, that type of thing, which we really don't see in the common form of neurogenic thoracic outlet syndrome. But this represents the, the actual true form of NTOS. What we're talking about when we talk about the thoracic outlet or thoracic outlet syndrome is the area here, typically of the scalene triangle. So you're seeing the anterior scalene muscle and then the brachial plexus, and then deep to the brachial plexus is the middle scalene muscle. And note that the anterior scalene muscle is attached to the first rib, which is here. Here's the clavicle, and then this is demonstrating the ulnar nerve and, um, and the median nerve as well. Here's another view of the area that we're describing anterior scalene muscle, then deep to that would be the brachial plexus, deep to that is the middle scalene muscle. There's the long thoracic nerve, which can be damaged sometimes during surgery, and there's a phrenic nerve that's not listed here, but that lies uh, often sort of anterior to the anterior scalene muscle. The structure, and now note also there's the subclavian artery, right, that's next to the brachial plexus here, subclavian artery, and then the subclavian vein is here. These structures of interest all lie on top of the first rib and underneath the clavicle. Well, the compression of the brachial plexus 
is typically, you know, what we're thinking is causing this syndrome. 95 to 98% of the time, it's neurogenic. It can be vascular, you know, subclavian artery, subclavian vein, but mostly it's neurogenic. And what's happening is that there's an inadequate passageway between the base of the neck and the armpit. Why? Well, scalene hypertrophy can occur, fibrosis can occur, cervical ribs, which are rare, but can occur. A lot of the time, we see patients who report repetitive motion, repetitive motion of their arm, so repetitive activities, like assembly line workers. I had a patient that I saw a couple of years ago who was from another country outside the United States, and he had been working um, using his arm sort of in, in this repetitive motion activity for hours and hours and hours during the day, and, and he developed what I thought was the neurogenic form of thoracic outlet syndrome. So when, if you see assembly line workers, you can think that of this particular syndrome in the, diag in the uh, differential diagnosis. Keyboard typing, sometimes I've seen patients with excessive keyboard typing activities develop pain in the neck and down the arm. Whiplash injury is a big one, motor vehicle accidents. Sometimes swimmers, sometimes volleyball players, baseball pitchers can develop this. And, and there have been recent reports in the literature about uh, musicians, those that are specifically playing the violin or viola, have developed the neurogenic form of thoracic outlet syndrome. What patients report is numbness in the arm, tingling in the fingers, pain in the neck, uh, muscle spasms, sometimes specifically in the trapezius. Also, you know, posterior headaches. Patients would come to me too with saying, well, you know, I feel these symptoms down my arm. I feel the, the pins and needles, but I'm also getting bad headaches from this particular syndrome. Uh, they, actually, I feel like they don't really demonstrate a lot of weakness when I examine their extremities, but subjectively they will say that they're weak. Here's an image too of possible compression sites. There are three. This demonstrates the two big ones, and I'll show you a subsequent slide that demonstrates the third, but we're really looking at different compression sites. The first would be, say, the scalene triangle that I've mentioned before. By the way, here is the phrenic nerve that you see lying on top of the anterior scalene muscle. Um, and then the subpectoralis space, the brachial plexus, lies deep to the pectoralis minor muscle. Now, here's another picture, actually, that I thought was even more useful than that one. What it depicts here is the three different areas of possible compression. The first is the scalene triangle. The second would be the costoclavicular space. You can see, here's the first rib, here's the clavicle, and you can see the brachial plexus here, subclavian artery, the anterior middle scalene muscles. And the third site of possible compression is the pectoralis space, what they're calling the pectoral, pectoralis minor space. I've seen patients uh, who are sent to me by the vascular surgeon that I work with who we feel don't have any symptoms in the scalene triangle or the costoclavicular space, but do in the pectoralis minor muscle. And I've injected that with some local anesthetic um, or specifically botulinum toxin to try to help them out when, when the vascular surgeon really doesn't feel they're good surgical candidates or that the surgery is going to be helpful. Well, with respect to the neurogenic form, you know, there's a thought that there's a congenital predisposition to developing this syndrome, and then what happens is that patients develop some type of injury. There's some injury that then compromises the outlet, like a motor vehicle accident, for example, whiplash injury perhaps. And it's that narrowed space that affects the scalene muscles, the plexus, and these other nerves that, are, that I've mentioned that are in that, that scalene triangle, or at least one of those sites. Also, the stellate ganglion. Interestingly, you know, I, I'll have patients say, um, gosh, you know, I feel like my arm does sometimes turn colors, or 
my hand sometimes is red or other times it's blue, and it may not be because they actually have any compression of the subclavian artery, for example. It may be because they do have compromise of the stellate ganglion, right, the sympathetic nervous system that is leading to vasoconstriction or vasodilatation. This is one of the most common, in fact, it may be the most common controversial diagnosis in medicine. Uh, it's a spectrum disorder. There are surgeons, there are other physicians and healthcare providers that don't believe this exists, or they just don't understand it at all. But it is complex. It is difficult to fully understand because there aren't you know, objective signs and symptoms. The objectivity with respect to the diagnosis is lacking. And that is a, that's, it's, it's a problem right now uh, with respect to that because I think, you know, in my mind, this sort of represents what we, what we used to think of with respect to, or some, some providers used to imagine fibromyalgia was like, right? Even today, there are some who feel like fibromyalgia is not a real diagnosis, right? That it's something else. Well, I think this is somewhat similar. You know, there are many who feel like this is something, what you're calling neurogenic represents something else because the objectivity is lacking. But we do know, based on a couple of studies, one in particular from a former surgical colleague of mine, that if this remains untreated, that quality of life diminishes significantly, almost as though that person had congestive heart failure. And that's significant. The three forms are neurogenic, arterial, and venous. We'll just, we're going to focus on the neurogenic. The true neurogenic form is rare, about 1% of cases. That's, think of the picture that I, sent, that I showed you before of the true form. I mean, it's rare. I don't, think I've, I don't know that I've ever seen that in, in treating patients for about 15 years. But the common form is common, and it is um, about 98 or so percent of the cases. You know, the symptoms are suggestive that there's some compromise or some dysfunction in the brachial plexus, but we don't have a lot of objective findings. I mean, you know, and I'll go through that. But it's a space problem, right? There could be congenital anomalies with superimposed, as I mentioned, traumatic injury, muscle spasm, fibrosis. And um, with respect to congenital etiologies, some patients have cervical ribs. But you know, it's really rare. I think this, it's about 0.73 or 4% incidence of cervical ribs. Fibrous bands, though, can occur and narrow the space through which the nerve roots lie and uh, can induce symptoms. As I mentioned before, this hyperextension flexion injury, perhaps, of the neck can induce symptoms, whiplash, and repetitive stress injury. This is fascinating. If I've looked at some of the studies um, on the histology of the anterior scalene muscle or the middle scalene muscle, and what it shows is that fibrosis develops there. So muscle fibrosis could be, is a prime finding on exam of some of these XI scalene muscles. So fibrosis in the muscle, and actually fibrosis perhaps around the brachial plexus itself might be inducing the symptoms. So scar tissue is about three times greater in those patients who had NTOS compared to controls. Well, let's talk about the etiology of, and specifically the anterior scalene muscle, because that could be something if you, the anterior, the middle scalene muscle, I know there are other causative, possible causative factors, but I feel like the anterior scalene muscle is one of them, and uh, I like to focus on that. It derives from C3 to 6 vertebral bodies. It attaches to the first rib, as I mentioned before. And, you know, it doesn't do a whole lot. <laughs> I mean, it, it's just an accessory muscle respiration, and it helps also bend and rotate the neck slightly. And, and it does, I say that, um, you know, 
laughingly, but in patients that I've seen who've had surgery, you know, they've had the anterior sclerectomy done or both the sclerectomy and the rib resection, I mean, I haven't seen them complain of any respiratory problems or any rotational problems with the neck from excision of the muscle um, and the, uh, that connects to the rib, the first rib. But, you know, spasm of the muscle can put traction on the brachial plexus and cause edema of the muscle of the nerve. So it can cause neural edema and muscular edema and limit the outlet that way. Scar development, fibrosis, adhesions can, can worsen that compromise of the brachial plexus and perpetuate pain. So targeting that scalene muscle can relieve tension, relieve the spasm, and perhaps interrupt the events leading to NTOS. Clinically, you know, similar to other chronic pain conditions like fibromyalgia, like migraine headache, NTOS occurs more frequently in women than men, three to four times more frequently. The incidence is somewhere between 0.3 to 8%, so 3 to 80 cases per 1,000 people. 8% seems a little high, frankly, but that's what I've seen in the literature. Uh, athletes, as I mentioned before, certain musicians might be predisposed to NTOS. Athletes, certain, certain types of athletes with a lot of overhead motion activities may be predisposed as well. But if you, there was a study that looked at patients with NTOS, and there was a history of neck trauma or trauma to the shoulder girdle and arm that was reported in almost 80% of those patients. So typically, there's some type of trauma that's involved that leads, that seems to lead to the symptoms. Pa classically, patients will say they feel pain in the shoulder and that radiates, or paresthesias. So it's pain or paresthesias in the shoulder. They feel the paresthesias down the inner aspect of the arm, the forearm, and into the pinky and the ring finger. That's classically what's reported. Um, you know, and that's probably due, we think, to lower the lower brachial plexus compression, that is C8T1. At the same time, though, patients will not only report symptoms in that distribution, but feel like they have pain in the neck, the mastoid, sometimes the anterior chest wall area, headaches, as I mentioned before, and that could be due to upper plexus compression, that is C5 to C7. That also may be occurring, that is the upper plexus symptoms, because there can be anomalies to the distribution or the course of the C5 and C6 uh, aspects of the brachial plexus. That is, C5 and C6 may aberrantly lie on top of the anterior scalene muscle or may actually uh, penetrate through the anterior scalene muscle. And if that muscle then becomes fibrotic or develops edema or becomes hypertrophic, that can lead to upper plexus symptoms. You can see you know, neurogenic and vascular symptoms from that sympathetic nervous system activation that I mentioned before, and that would be around C, C8 to T, well, those C8 to T1 fibers, the stellate ganglion, which exists in that area. Now, on exam, patients typically, not always, but you know, would present with tender scalene muscle. Um, the trapezius might be tense and tight as well. Chest wall could be sore. I'll talk about some of the exam findings, but Sometimes there's a, you can find a positive tenel sign over the brachial plexus in the neck. Sometimes a reduced sensation to light touch in the fingers. And the, the provocative maneuvers that are often performed um, can be positive. But in the differential, you have to consider other things. You know, I see more patients probably than not who 
tell me that the symptoms are not just down the medial aspect of the arm. I mean, they feel them throughout the entire arm. Or they feel them not only in the medial aspect of the arm, but the anterior part of the arm as well, and in more than just the pinky or the ring finger. So, you know, the entire, the entire arm can be involved, and there can be no dermatomal preference there. Uh, and this makes it difficult, right? I mean, but you have to think about what else can be causing the symptoms. So there can be disc herniations, cervical stenosis that can lead to some of these symptoms, certainly cervical radiculopathy. Um, carpal tunnel syndrome can sometimes also be a, a sort of a confounder because patients will say, well, you know, I, have it, I feel it in my fingers. Sometimes I feel it in the latter two, and then I feel it in my arm, forearm. So, you know, and even cubital tunnel syndrome. So these are often ruled out. I mean, you know, often patients, by the time they see me, have already had an MRI of their neck. They've had EMG nerve conduction studies, which uh, typically don't demonstrate anything. So the diagnosis then, really, in my mind, is still clinical based on exam and history. Because we really don't have tests that are very specific for NTOS yet. The provocative testing that I see done a lot still have unknown reliability and low specificity. The provocative maneuvers, such as you know the nerve tension tests, the elevated arm stress test, um, which actually I do more frequently than not, some have felt might be the most reliable provocative maneuver. Still, though, you know it's not particularly specific for NTOS. Uh, the vascular tests, you know, the provocative maneuvers that are done, like the Adson test too. Um, have many false positives associated with them. So I think that these tests are usually done, and they're usually done by others before they come to me, but we really don't have, they don't really have a lot of specificity attached to them. What about EMG nerve conduction testing? Well, you know, that's often still normal in patients who have NTOS, but it can exclude other causes of their symptoms. As I mentioned before, radiculopathy, median nerve disorders, carpal tunnel syndrome, things like that, polyneuropathy. So that can be important to perform uh, if you're trying to rule out whether this, this patient has NTOS or not. I see, most of the patients that I see have already had chest x-rays, uh, and I think that's primarily done to rule out a cervical rib. They're rare. What about an MRI or CT? Well, a lot of them have had MRIs of the neck to rule out conditions that can mimic NTOS, like disc herniation or stenosis. This is interesting now. There's been um, a couple of studies that have looked at three, so three Tesla MR brachial plexus neurography. And this isn't done, at least in my institution, routinely. But interestingly, there was a study that demonstrated that out of 30 patients, seven had morphological correlates of thoracic outlet syndrome, which were later confirmed by surgical exploration. That is, in seven out of 30 patients, fibrous bands were detected around the brachial plexus that later the surgeon confirmed existed on exploration. So this is an interesting, it's interesting to note whether we'll use this for diagnostic purposes in the future or not. Also, the medial antibrachial cutaneous nerve conduction study can detect sometimes minor cases of NTOS. This is not done routinely either. I think it still needs more validation studies, but it measures the sensory function of the lower trunk of the brachial plexus. And in certain patients, it can be abnormal, even though they have a normal EMG 
and nerve conduction tests. So with respect to diagnostic testing, the, you know, the medial antibrachial cutaneous nerve conduction study may be used with greater frequency in the future. Same thing with the MR neurography. I don't know that MR neurography, you know, the question is going to be when we use MR neurography, when we don't, do we do it in every patient? That's, that's tricky because we don't know yet. But I think it was, I just wanted to highlight that this is, there are a couple of studies that have, that have demonstrated that what I mentioned before is a possible the etiology really does exist. That is fibrosis around the brachial plexus. Fibrosis also exists, we know from histology, around the muscle, anterior scalene muscle or so. I wanted to put this up. Uh, this is from a colleague who has delivered this lecture before because I think it's important to realize that in time, if the pain of NTUS persists and becomes chronic, that the symptoms can change. Once early on in the process, say the first month or two months or so, patients may demonstrate the typical presentation of NTOS down the medial aspect of the arm and into the fingers, the latter two fingers. However, as time goes on and if the symptoms become chronic, you know, a year later, for example, well, those symptoms may expand because of central sensitization that I mentioned earlier, that process of pain amplification and an increase in the, in the sensory receptive fields that occur, such that then patients are saying, well, you know, it, it used to radiate down just the medial aspect of my arm, but now I feel it everywhere, you know, and I really feel it in my thumb and index finger. Well, this may be why. What about the anterior scalene muscle, the anterior scalene block? You know, this is something that I've done for several years. Uh, others do it too at other institutions. And uh, I, it was primarily established in 1998 by a study uh, by Jordan who performed this test, I think it was under EMG, with local anesthetic and studied the results of, so for those who had a positive test, that is it reduced their pain, and who went on to surgery, many of them had a positive outcome after surgical decompression. And that's essentially why the anterior scalene muscle has been used more often than say the middle scalene muscle, or the pectoralis minor muscle. But this can be, it's not a diagnostic test, and I don't tell patients that it is, because I don't think we know that yet, and I, and I don't feel comfortable saying that. But I think it can sometimes help support the diagnosis. The thought is that you know, it paralyzes the muscle, and if the muscle is tense, if it's tight, then it decompresses the space inside that triangle. That allows the, remember that anterior scalene muscle is attached to the first rib, so if there's less spasm and less contraction of the muscle, then it allows that rib to descend, and that and that scalene triangle and decompresses. You know, if you look back in the literature, this block was first done in 1939, which is a long, long time ago. I didn't realize that. Here's what I said before. A positive response correlates well with good surgical outcomes. That was a study that was done in 1998. 94% um, of patients with a positive block had good outcomes following decompressive surgery in that one study versus just 50% who had surgery with a negative block. And, and this is why, in general, we're targeting the anterior scalene muscle. But it can be targeted um, using anatomic landmarks, using EMG, using ultrasound, CT, which is what I typically do, or even MR now. The, we, we did, I was part of a study done a couple of years ago that examined well, which of these methods maybe uh, produce or lead to fewer complications. And 
you know, this, we compared CT versus EMG versus anatomic landmarks versus uh, ultrasound, and we found that the CT-guided procedures minimize some side effects, like Horner syndrome, brachial plexus blocks, and dysphagia. This is just another picture of um, the area that we're talking about. Here's the scalene triangle. Here's the brachial plexus, subclavian artery, subclavian vein, and um, the middle scalene muscle. First rib here, clavicle right there. This is a view of the, it's an axial view of the neck. So when we do this under CT guidance, I like it because I can see the structures. I mean, I can see them very easily. I can't see the nerves, but I can see the muscles and I can see the vessels. And this is what it looks like, if you can see it from there. But essentially, what you're looking at here is that um, here's the trachea in the center, and then this is the sternocleidomastoid. The anterior scalene muscle is here, and then the middle scalene slash posterior scalene muscle complex is uh, posterior to that. So the brachial plexus then typically is between the anterior and middle scalene muscles. And what we do is inject a little local anesthetic into the scalene, anterior scalene muscle. And I'm talking to slit like a half a cc is all I use of, say, bupivacaine, 0.25%. Uh, and, then, and then what you're seeing here is, well, before that, actually, I inject contrast. Obviously, I inject a little bit of contrast, two-tenths of a cc or so of contrast, and then injecting local anesthetic, which is what you're seeing here, sort of the dilution of the contrast with a little bit of local anesthetic. Now, what about treatments and conservative? What about the treatments? I mean, because there are several different treatments that can be used. Let's start with the conservative treatments. Well, there, most surgeons, and the surgeons that I work with, you know, want patients to go through physical therapy first, and they usually go through a couple of months of physical therapy. The physical therapists help them focus on correcting their ergonomics and, doing, and, and their posture, which can help. They do nerve glides, um, stretching exercises, and they all focus on decompressing the brachial plexus. CBT sometimes, I've noticed, can be helpful with patients who have NTOS um, and in other patients who don't have NTOS but who have chronic pain because it really does help modify and reframe the pain experience and their perception of pain and modifies their self-talk. I mean, I'm surprised at how many patients of mine during the day have a lot of negative thoughts about their pain. I'm never going to get better, it's never going to get better, my life is over, and so on. And CBT can really be helpful, not immediately, but over the course of several months. And I found it sometimes helpful for patients who have NTOS as well. Physical therapy seems to be a staple. You know, before the surgeons operate, uh, even after surgery, physical therapy is proposed and, and um, often, if not required, strongly recommended. There is some data that, that supports the use of things like certain exercise programs, cervical traction, and heat packs. There's more data actually on the success of inpatient rehabilitation followed by home exercise programs and a high satisfaction rate. And there's been a lot of um, significant pain decrease in treatment satisfaction with these postural corrections and shoulder girdle strengthening exercises. But, you know, it's taken about 14 months to do that. And that's a long time. It's a long time for patients to wait. I mean, it would be a long time for me to wait too. 60 to 70 percent of patients may be successfully managed non-operatively, that is, with these conservative treatments, when physical therapy is performed for at least eight weeks. And that's based on a study that was done by one of the colleagues, surgical colleagues that I worked with. I feel like, in, I feel like physical therapy, you know, 
I guess clinically, when I see patients who've had physical therapy, many will say that it's helped them, but it's not helped them. And that's when we need some other treatments, um, perhaps even other than surgery. What about the medications? Well, muscle relaxants, quote unquote, I mean, can be helpful. And I say quote unquote because like tizanidine, for example, is sort of a centrally acting, we think, muscle relaxant. It also, it also is an alpha-2 adrenergic agonist, so it can reduce pain that way. So if you, if you consider a medication, you could choose a low-dose tizanidine for patients with NTOS or an NSAID. Trigger point injections, I think, can be helpful along the trapezius. Trapezius often becomes tight and tense in patients with NTOS. Uh, you can use local anesthetic or not. You could do dry needling. Tricyclic antidepressants, helpful. You know, I feel like these are helpful medications in patients who have, actually, I use them in patients who have muscle pain, certainly neuropathic pain. The database, the data is strong for their effectiveness in neuropathic pain. And, you know, in a certain patients with NTOS who have chronic pain, they do have neuropathic pain symptoms. I mean, they have burning sensations. They have areas of sensory deficit, pain attacks without provocation, et cetera, et cetera, some allodynia. So, you know, the nortriptyline, the other tricyclics can be really helpful in those circumstances. Same thing with duloxetine. Some, in some patients, I've found those membrane stabilizers, gabapentin, for example, pregabalin, to help too, especially if they have neuropathic pain. Opioids, even though they're vilified, can still be helpful, and I find that patients who can't get through physical therapy do sometimes benefit from short-acting opioids before physical therapy, you know, and I provide those. Long-acting opioids, extended-release opioids in this patient population can sometimes be useful. In general, I haven't needed to do that, frankly, but I have prescribed short-acting opioids to assist them through physical therapy. Here's the trapezius muscle. This is something that I found, too, is often painful especially around, like, superior to the, uh, the spine of the scapula. You know, I mean, in that area, patients will say that it just kills them. It's tight. It's tense. They have headaches. And so if you can palpate areas along the muscle that are tense or tight, then I think some trigger point injections can be useful. What about botulinum toxin and Botox? This is a drug that um, I actually am very excited about. I use it for... Other than NTOS, I'm going to use it for chronic migraine therapy. I think it can be very helpful and for other conditions as well. Uh, but the, the use of this, I think, is intriguing for NTOS. And I had done, with some others, a study using this, just injecting it into the anterior scalene muscle under CT guidance. Low dose, you know, was 20, 20 units at that time. And uh, I found it to be quite effective. It's approved for things like hemifacial spasm, blepharospasm, chronic migraine. But because it's quite safe, its use has expanded beyond the approved use. And so we're using it off-label for myofascial pain in the lumbosacral spine, for example. Piriformis syndrome, I use it for that too. Uh, even, I don't use it for this as much, but it can be used for lateral epicondylitis. It's also FDA approved for hyperhidrosis. I know this is, I'm digressing here, but I have some patients who have horrific, you know, sweating of their palms. And I have to tell you, it is amazing to see the difference. If you inject Botox into their hands, which is what I, which is what I do, to help reduce the symptoms. I mean, it, it helps for several months, three months or so, and it can be life-changing. I mean, some of these patients, really, it feels like they have water almost gushing from their hands, and it's amazing how effective Botox is for that. Well, the therapeutic effects are 
can be twofold, maybe threefold. But one, as you might imagine, it reduces muscle overactivity. So it blocks the release of acetylcholine and thereby weakens the muscle. How long? Usually three to four months, if you look in the literature. Sometimes longer, I have to say. But, but ballpark, three to four months. Interestingly, though, it may also reduce pain by inhibiting inflammation, preventing the release of pain neurotransmitters like substance P and glutamate. And those we know are involved in nociceptive transmission and central sensitization. It also, number three, may improve wound healing. Now this is curious. This, is, this one study that I saw was the use of botulinum toxin um, in rats, actually. It was, in, it was a rat study and it improved wound healing in injured muscles and reduced scarring in those animals. And I thought, wow, I wonder if it has the potential to do that in humans as well. We don't know yet. But there was a study that was done, the next one was done um, using botulinum toxin in patients, in human patients who had radiation fibrosis syndrome and benefits were observed in those patients. So it may actually, in my mind, be useful in three different ways, three, dis- three different mechanisms. One, reduce muscle overactivity. Two, reduce pain neurotransmitters. And three, potentially, and I'm, probably, I'm going off on a limb here, and it's theoretical, but it may also influence positively fibrosis. If we look at the evidence for the use of botulinum toxin, it dates back to about 1969 when it was used for a lot of different things, a lot of different conditions, muscle contractions, piriformis syndrome, foot dystonia, myofascial pain, and so on. So there's a long track record of use of botulinum toxin for pain conditions. Well, with respect to the use of it in the anterior scalene muscle, uh, when we studied this, we just injected 20 units into the anterior scalene muscle and studied patients over the course of three months. And they really did report significant relief, even at three months, in sensory and VAS scores. Um, interestingly, they had, I mean, they certainly had less relief in the third month. And, and I see that clinically when I treat patients regularly. I mean, often they'll say that the pain starts recurring sometime at the end of the second month or into the third month. But even at the third month, the pain scores did not return to their pre-intervention levels at three months, so they were still deriving benefit. This is just a repeat picture, just to show you what's done. You know, with respect to the botulinum toxin, I inject contrast, and then after the contrast, inject. Now I'm injecting about 25 units or so of botulinum toxin into the anterior scalene muscle. It takes very little time at all to do um, under CT, CT fluoro. It's very quick. There's limited exposure to radiation as well. So the benefits, I think, of CT are that you can see the structures. It's pretty fast. It's accurate. It's safe. And we have access to CT fluoroscopy, so we can take quick pictures and see real-time imaging, which can be helpful. I think ultrasound is is, certainly does not expose the patient to ionizing radiation and can be used. Um, The CT is helpful in patients who are perhaps obese because the image is not obscured and it's not obscured by adjacent uh, bony structures as well under CT. There was a, a retrospective study that was done that I was involved in that looked at, well, you know, which patients who were injected with botulinum toxin benefited the most based on the imaging modality. And what we found was that the, there was a higher percentage of anesthetic injections, that is local anesthetic injections, that resulted in positive blocks under CT versus ultrasound versus fluoroscopy versus EMG alone. 
Um, and we looked at patients then who had surgery and verified that that rate of improvement was about 70% with CT, which, which was helpful. I mean, it was a retrospective study, but it, it provided some information about what type of imaging modalities could be useful. What about other imaging studies? There certainly are other imaging studies uh, with respect to the use of botulinum toxin. And I've listed some of them here, fluoroscopy and EMG. And the point of my doing this is to show you and to highlight that, you know, even if you don't use CT, other imaging modalities with the, um, using botulinum toxin have shown efficacy. Fluoroscopy and EMG has shown 50% relief at one month, uh, mean duration of relief three months. Ultrasound EMG, good outcomes. Fluoroscopy EMG, good outcomes. Ultrasound alone, uh, mean duration of relief about 31 days after the injection of botulinum toxin. Now, not all of them, a lot of these studies, you know, mix up how they're in, where they're injecting the Botox. I mean, they're not all just injecting them into one muscle. It could be the anterior scaling, the middle scaling, and sometimes the pectoralis minor. And that's another problem, I think, in, the, in our studies. I mean, we don't have a, a uniform method of which of injection and knowing, well, what is the exact etiology of this syndrome, which is why we're targeting more than one muscle, for example. Uh, now, I wanted to mention this study because this was a high-quality study that was done. A lot of these other studies, uh, including my own, you know, are observational longitudinal studies. This was a double-blinded, randomized control trial that was done in 2011 by a Canadian. And they examined 18 patients, sorry, it was, I think, 20 patients or so, and um, injected botulinum toxin into both the anterior scalene muscle and the middle scalene muscle. They used 37.5 or so units into each muscle. And they did not detect a benefit, you know, in patients that they studied. And they studied patients for about six months. I have to say, though, that I don't, uh, I sort of doubt some of this, the findings, because in doing this myself over several years, I, def I definitely do find benefit. I mean, patients report to me benefit with respect to the use of botulinum toxin. So I think in this study, there are a couple of problems, some limitations in the studies. One, they studied patients who had definitely a chronic pain syndrome. These patients had a mean pain duration of six years. It's a long time. And we know that you know, over the course of time, chronic pain can be difficult to treat. So that might be one limitation in this study. The second is that some patients didn't really have much pain. So it's going to be hard to measure a difference in their pain if they really don't start out with much pain at all. And thirdly, there were some blinding problems associated with um, the patients that they studied that led to unblinding and allocation biases. So, you know, I wanted to mention that. I think it's important to know. And, you know, the thing is that insurers, for example, will look at studies like this and say, well, look, you know, fine, you did your study and other people have done their studies, but this is the, this is the highest quality study. And look what it showed. It showed patients didn't benefit and therefore we're not going to cover the Botox. And that's what happens in reality at times. But I think that, you know, if we're armed with more information to say, well, that's true, but there were several limitations of this particular study. Here they are. I think you should reconsider. This is a long, involved slide that I just wanted to provide really for your use and, and as a guide uh, at home, you know, or in your practice, just to describe the etiology, diagnostic measures, and minimally invasive surgeries that can be used for NTOS. Well, I think that um, the use of botulinum toxin can be valuable. It's minimally invasive. Pain reduction, it, in my experience, and if you look at the literature, 
lasts for about three months on average, which is not bad. I mean, you know, to get an injection of Botox quarterly, if you will, I mean, you know, three to four times a year or so, it, I think for patients who have chronic pain, is pretty doable. I mean, it really is. It avoids what I think is beneficial with respect to botulinum toxin is that it allows patients to, if they want to, avoid surgery, and some patients want to, perhaps avoid surgical complications and some of the time off work. Like the surgeon that I had, that I do work with and I worked with before, require patients, for example, to start PT two weeks after surgery and then continue that for two months and then take two to three months off of work. Well, that's not that easy. And, you know, no lifting 10 pounds for six months. Well, that's also sometimes challenging. So I think that the value to botulinum toxin is for patients who don't want surgery, who need a bridge to surgery. Perhaps they can't take work off right now for two to three months, but they can in six months. Well, it's fantastic to have an option here that can reduce their pain and improve their quality of life in between that time. And although this hasn't been studied, it may be a trial of before surgery. That is, you know, it's interesting. It may be a predictor of surgical outcome. Hasn't been studied, but it's something to think about. This is what um, patients look like on the operating room table who have, at least at my institution, the transaxillary rib resection and anterior scalenectomy. And um, that's what certain patients want to avoid. The surgical, I'm going to touch on this because I think it's important to know a little bit about it. The, there are different approaches to the surgery, but the comparative efficacy data is lacking on which approach is the best. And I think that's hard because, you know, patients will ask me, well, you know, I, I'm thinking about surgery, but, and I've read that there are different approaches. Which one should I use? I, you know, it, it's hard for me to provide guidance on that because, at least in the literature, we don't know. And if you look at the Cochrane database, the Cochrane database, recent, recent database, will say, you know, there's low evidence for sur there's low evidence that surgery is helpful, and there's low evidence that botulinum toxin is helpful, and there are no randomized controlled trials on other therapies. Well, but where does it leave patients? You know, I mean, where does it leave patients who have these symptoms and who need some improvement? So I think it's it's tough. But if you look at the if you look at the efficacy data on surgery, um, you know, low quality that the transaxillary first rib resection reduces pain more than the supra clavicular scalenectomy does. Now, if you ask surgeons, and I don't know if there are any in the room, but you know, some of the, when I've asked surgeons, well, which approach do you use? I mean, which one do you feel is the most effective and when? Some have said to me, well, look, if I feel like the patient demonstrates upper plexus symptoms, C5, C6, C7, then I'll use the supraclavicular approach. Whereas, if they demonstrate lower plexus symptoms, C8, T1, then I'll approach it transaxillary rib resection, anterior scalenectomy. But I've heard, I've heard others differ with that. There are certainly reports of high success and low complication rates with surgery, 90% success rates if you look at the literature. Longitudinal studies suggest maybe 60% recurrence after the first year and even 80% recurrence after the second year. So, you know, that's, those are pretty high. Sometimes, you know, I've also read in the literature, persistent disability in 60% of patients one year after surgery. Well, that's really high. And that the complication rate might be higher than 30%. Again, those are significant figures there. And I think that, um, you know, for patients considering surgery, uh, they, they need to know some of this data. However, 
there is hope here. And the hope is that there are more minimally invasive surgical approaches today. For example, endoscopic transaxillary for first rib resection. This is actually something that may reduce the risk of complications and improve surgical outcomes. It's primarily used in vascular TOS, but the robotic first rib resection is being used in vascular and neurogenic TOS. So there might be hope that minimally invasive surgical methods can improve outcome. So in conclusion, I want to say that uh, the neurogenic form is the most common type of thoracic outlet syndrome. It's often misdiagnosed. It's overlooked, unfortunately. And frankly, I didn't say this before, but you know, there are some who feel like it's a neuro. <laughs> I've, had, I've had some neurologists say, you know, this is a neuromyth. The whole thing is a neuromyth. It doesn't exist. Some of the surgeons have said this as well. Why? Because you can't demonstrate anything objectively on imaging. You can't demonstrate anything on you know, EMG nerve conduction testing. Okay, but I think it's more than a myth, frankly. Uh, certainly we know that it can lead to chronic pain and persistent pain, and if untreated, it can impair quality of life significantly. I think the great uh, hope is that we have minimally invasive surgical methods that can improve success rates, and that we have emerging evidence for the use of botulinum toxin in those who perhaps don't want surgery or aren't, aren't candidates for surgery. Okay, well, thanks so much for your time. Thank you.